Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open, open up to Luke chapter 15, if you would please. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to do something a little different this morning. Normally we, uh, we'll read the passage and then we'll go back and exposit it, but this morning, because of the, the, the length of the passage, we're going we're gonna to read and as exposit as we go. So, um, but before we do that, let's ask the Holy Spirit to just help us do that. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, and once again, we're just overwhelmed by your grace, by your love. And we sit now with the word of life open on our laps, in your presence, Lord, with open hearts. We ask, God, that you would transform our lives. We want to be open with you and transparent with you. You know all things anyway. And yet there is this wall that can be put up between you and us, a hardness of our heart that you will honor. You won't violate unless we open up to you. And so this morning, Lord, may we come palms up to you and just say, Lord, you know all these things anyway. And I want my life to, to look like Jesus's. And so would you do that in my life this morning? Would you help me to have your heart, have your eyes, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your mind, Lord? Come and teach us this morning, we pray, by the power of your spirit, through the blood of the Lamb, in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys would agree that we serve an incredibly passionate God? I think everybody would agree with that. I mean, God is passionate about all kinds of things. He's passionate about his glory, right? He's passionate about his word. But there's something that I think he is, at this point in time in his plan in the history of mankind, that he is most passionate about. And that is the lost. God, I think in the, this moment in time, his passion is turned towards sinners who are lost in this world. I believe the lost hold a deep place of passion in God's heart because God is love, right? And love covers a multitude of what? sin. So therefore, God is love, and, and love covers a multitude of sin. God is in love with sinners, and he wants to reconcile sinners to himself. And so the, the lost hold a deep passion in the heart of God. I don't think it gets any clearer than that in our chapter this morning. I think Jesus is sharing with us God's heart for the lost. That's the title of our message this morning. This is one of the most extraordinary chapters in all of the Bible. As we understand God's heart for sinners. We understand Jesus himself being part of the Godhead explaining to us what his heart is for sinners. He explains this to us in three different parables. Now don't let the familiarity you know, stop you from being blown away at the heart of God. Right? You may have read these passages before and you know the stories, but don't let that stop you from hearing his voice this morning. We're going to go over the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Look with me at verse 1 there where we find the occasion for these parables. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
the occasion for these parables being revealing God's heart for the lost comes as a response of critical comments being made by the Pharisees and scribes as they observe this incredible migration of the lost to Jesus. As they sit and watch sinners, tax collectors, the most despicable people come to Jesus, they begin to grumble. Now you would think that this would make the people of God excited and celebratory, right? They would be excited about what is happening here, that sinners and tax collectors are drawing near to God. And yet the response of the Pharisees and the scribes is one is disdain. Literally, this makes them sick to their stomachs to watch Jesus intermingle with these kind of people. For you see, a tax collector was considered a traitor in this time. You know that they sided with Rome. They worked for Rome and they were commissioned by Rome to collect tax for Rome. And by the way, they made their living by collecting in excess. Whatever they collected in excess was their own. And so they were despised by the Jewish people. It was the tax collectors that were drawing near to Jesus. Not only the tax collectors, but it was the sinners. Now these sinners were not just sinners that were stumbling along and trying to, to do their best to represent God. These were people that were openly in sin. Like they weren't trying to hide it. Like these were prostitutes and, and, and people like that. Bad business people. Dishonest business people. People that were openly sinning. Adulterers. Drunkards. It was these folks that were drawing near to Jesus. Now imagine with me for a moment. Probably can't be that hard to imagine, but imagine sinners filling this place. It's not hard, is it? But imagine the most vile of sinners filling this place. Imagine the traitors like Arnold, you know, Benedict Arnold coming through the door if he were alive. Or we could say Colin Kaepernick. I don't know, you make the choice there. Or imagine he coming with you know, El Chapo, you know, Guzman, along with Sean Penn, because they go together, apparently, I don't know. Imagine him coming, along with, let's say, Ellen DeGeneres, right? A vocal person in the LBGT community, right? And imagine them coming into our midst, along with Andrea Yates. You know who she is? She was the mom in 2001 that drowned her kids as her husband went off to work. Imagine her entering there. Let's get a little bit more personal. What about... The, the sex offender that lives down the street from you, darkening the door of your church. What about the drunkard, the, the drug addict, these people coming in this door? What is your response? That's what you have to put yourself in the story to understand what's going on. Do you become all religious? Do you think to yourself, what are they doing here? That's what was happening in this text. What is God's response to these kind of people when they come to Him, when they are drawing near to Him? Does He say, no, 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 you can't come. You can't come to me. No, He says, come with open arms. Because we serve a God that came to get dirty. We serve a God that loves sinners, who is passionate about lost people being reconciled to God. And yet His representatives ought to be the same. We ought to respond in the exact same manner. The Pharisees and scribes, they were God's representation during this time. And yet they wanted to keep people at an arm's length distance because they termed it being unclean. 
I don't want to get unclean. And some of you in the church don't want to get unclean. You don't want to get dirty. You want to keep people away from you. You want to stay at an arm's length distance because it get, you get dirty when you're around sinners. And it's hard work and it's, it's heartbreaking at times. So it's better to just keep an arm's length distance. And we serve a God that engages. He inserts himself into people's lives. As the window opens, he inserts himself in and he will stay as long as he is welcome. And so that ought to be the church. We ought not be the Westboro Baptist type of people. These people, I believe, have a direct DNA link to the Pharisees and scribes. If you're not familiar with them, they are the guys that are representing Christ in our day, in our culture, with hatred towards sinners. That is not Jesus. Jesus is not like that. We see it clear in our text. Sinners are drawing near to him. Like he was approachable by sinners. Like he didn't stop them from coming. He wanted them to come. So much so that the text says that Jesus received them. You know what that word means? It means he welcomed them in. He received them in. He drew them in. He had them as his guests. Jesus was approachable by the dirty. He received no good nothing sinners in welcoming them, showing them love. But the religious folks, they wanted nothing to do with these people. Not only did he receive them, but he also noticed he dined with them, right? It's a picture of intimacy back in this culture to dine with somebody. You're becoming one with that person. How does that work? Well, you're eating from the same bowl they're eating from. You're touching the food that's going to go in their mouth. It's going to be interesting at the fellowship meal today. The person on your left is going to feed you. No hand sanitizer, no washing your hands. Let's see who you sit next to. Right? You might find yourself sitting, oh, I'm, going to find, I'm going to sit on the, this end where nobody's in front of me because they're on the left. No, that's not going to happen. But that's the culture that Jesus lived in. They ate, when they ate with somebody, it was a sign of intimacy. You were sharing yourself with them. Sometimes they would even feed each other. He was dining with them. He was having intimacy with tax collectors and sinners. Listen, this was social suicide, folks. This was social suicide. If Jesus was trying to make a name for himself in the religious community, this is not the way you do it. You don't go and invite sinners in and welcome them in and hang out with them. You keep a distance from them. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did, but not Jesus. Jesus couldn't keep a distance. He wouldn't keep a distance. He loves sinners so much so that not only would he dine for sinners, but he would also die for sinners. That's Jesus as it relates to to sinners. I hope you feel cherished today. I hope you feel loved. I hope you don't feel an arm's length distance away from God. And if you do, it's not Him. It's you. God is saying, I love you intimately. I am inviting you in. I want to receive you. I want to dine with you, but you have to come. Notice it wasn't Jesus who was pulling them to Himself. They were drawn to him. He's drawing you this morning to the throne room of grace to remember what he's done for you. Don't keep an arm length's distance. Come to him. 
Jesus as a result of the response of these Pharisees. Now, he says in verse 3 there that he told them, listen, this parable. He told them this parable. Don't miss that. You can enter the scripture and it's broke down for you in different sections and you can go, oh, well, here's, here's what applied to that. No, no, he told them this parable, which consequently was three parables. What am I saying? I'm saying that all three of these parables are the same parable that Jesus is talking about. He is communicating God's heart for the lost. He wants you to understand that God is not at arm length distance, that he is seeking to save the lost. And he will go at great length to do that. You take this whole thing in context. Many people take the prodigal son and they isolate it out of this. And that you can't do that. You have to keep it in context. And when you do that, you come up with ridiculous interpretations of the Scripture. You have to insert yourself into the history of the Bible to understand the interpretation of the Bible. You can't try and modernize what Jesus is saying and, and then come up with the interpretation. You have to go backwards. Like there's this nostalgia with God. He says, look, if you want to truly understand my heart, you've got to go backwards. Maybe that's because we're getting more and more distant from him. Maybe it's because in our, in our society with technology that we are becoming less and less intimate with God and more and more intimate with ourselves. God says you've got to go backwards. Insert yourself in the history of here. And it says here that he told them this parable. He begins with the parable of the lost sheep here. Look at verse 4 with me. What man of you... Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine to open, in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Jesus addressing the complaining of the Pharisees and the scribes here asks them a simple question. What man of you? What man of you? I'm going to modernize this so you can hear it. You've got to listen to this in Dennis Hopper's voice, okay? If you don't know who Dennis Hopper is, you're going to miss the whole thing. But it's okay. You ready? Pop quiz, hot shot. A man has a hundred sheep. One goes missing. What do you do? What do you do? It's from the movie Speed. But anyway. Gotcha. We'll move on. The answer is obvious here, right? Jesus is painting the obvious picture that you go after the one. The value of the one is as great as the 99 is what he's saying. And every, he's speaking in language that everyone would get. And don't misunderstand, he's speaking in language that he would also capture the attention of the Pharisees. If Jesus and the scribes, if he were to speak to them about tax collectors and sinners, they would have been closed off. They would have said, we don't want to hear that. We already have made up our mind about tax collectors and sinners, Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, let me simplify it for you. Let's talk about a shepherd and his sheep. Let's talk about how a shepherd relates to lost sheep, okay? And so he begins and he says, he says there's a shepherd that has 100 sheep. Now that was the average size of a sheepfold back in that day. And somehow he notices that one of them is missing, whether he's counting them at night and putting them in a safe place or whatever the case might be. He know, the shepherd knows his sheep and he knows one is missing. And so he leaves the 99 because he understands the, the end result of the one that is lost. He understands that a sheep on his own is defenseless, that he can't do anything on his own. He will die. He will become afraid. He will become, he will become confused. And he will end up being 
either he'll fall off a cliff or he will be consumed by some animal. He's in severe danger. The shepherd, looking at that situation, puts himself in danger. And he goes after the lost one. He will go after that one. He will seek diligently until he finds this one. Jesus asks, what man of you wouldn't go after one of those lost sheep? It's rhetorical. He's trying to make a statement about God's heart towards the lost. Okay, so, so follow with me now. He goes on in verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus goes on, now what man of you, having sought the sheep and having found him, wouldn't rejoice over him? What man of you wouldn't call your neighbors and have, uh, having said, I lost my sheep, but now he's found, rejoice with me? No doubt at this point, everybody is there, hey, I've been there, done that. I get it. Agrarian culture, we understand the analogy, Jesus, we get it. And yet there are some in that crowd that don't have a clue what he's talking about. So here's what he says. Here's the hammer. Here's where he makes the, the point. A parable is an earthly story that is connecting a heavenly principle. Here's the principle, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Boom! Don't know if it affected the Pharisees whatsoever. You want to know what God's heart is towards sinners? When he seeks and he does seek. When he seeks and he finds, he rejoices. He would rejoice. There is more joy over one who was lost and is found than those 99 that are safe and tucked away and being cared for already. He rejoices more. God rejoices over lost people. Don't miss this, not period. God rejoices over lost people that repent. Don't miss that. God is not rejoicing in heaven because a hundred people made a profession of faith and 99 of them were not real. God isn't rejoicing over heaven saying, I got a hundred today. And yet he knows the faith of 99 of them. God rejoices over true repentance. That is his call to the sinner that would come Come as you are, but you can't stay the same. Come as you are, I will receive you in, but I will cover you and change you and make you someone new. Repentance. It's a requirement in coming into his sheepfold to repent, to, to turn away from your life and to turn to God. To turn away, to renounce your sin and to turn full force towards God and say, I'm all yours. This drawing in by God is for one purpose. And that is that you might be convicted with a godly grief or a godly sorrow that would lead you to repentance, which ultimately produces salvation. 2 Corinthians 7.10, you can write that down and look it up later. But it's that kind of repentance that makes God rejoice. It's that kind of presence that not only makes our God in heaven rejoice, but all of heaven rejoice when a sinner repents 
and they fall on their face before our holy God and they turn away from their sin and they turn to him. That makes God go nuts in heaven. It's not that he doesn't rejoice over the 99. The 99 are safe and he is joyful over them and he loves them and he's so grateful that he has them but there is more joy in the sense that God understands the fate of the lost. And he understands that they will perish eternally if they don't come to him. The one set of group that God does not rejoice in at all is the self-righteous. He does not rejoice in the self-righteous who are standing on their own good works saying, I can do this on my own. And he's speaking to some of them in that crowd there today, in that, in that day, and he's saying, this righteousness that I speak of, don't misunderstand. It only comes in one way. It comes through sacrifice. It comes through repentance. When, and it will, he'll show us later, he'll illustrate that with this robe of righteousness that is put on the lost that have now been found. Who's the shepherd in the parable? Who's the great shepherd? It's Jesus. This is a parable of God's heart revealed for the lost. It's Jesus Christ and his heart revealed for the lost. Do you know what Jesus' mission was? To seek and save that which was lost. That was his mission. As he left heaven and he came to earth, he came to seek and save that which was lost. And so he speaks about himself as a shepherd here. He says, listen, my father, he loves the lost. That's why he sent me, scribe and Pharisee. You should love them too. You should love the lost too. And you should rejoice over them when they come in true repentance to me. Maybe they're not getting it. And so Jesus says, well, let me, let me, let me illustrate it a little differently. So he goes on in verse 8. Or what woman... Having ten coins, ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now in this parable, Jesus describes a woman that has ten coins. Culturally, women would receive ten coins on their wedding day. They would take those coins and they would put them on a silver, some kind of silver chain and they would wear them on their head. And it would be symbolic of their marriage. Not only did the coins have monetary value, but they had sentimental value. It would be like the diamond in your wedding ring, ladies. Like it's given to you and it's a symbol of of, you know, it's, it has monetary value, but it has sentimental value. Like that was, your, your husband gave you that. That maybe some of you are like, yeah, big deal. It's not big enough. No. <laughs> Listen, that diamond is symbolic of something. It's symbolic of the value placed on you. Your husband loves you. He gave you that. Now imagine if you lost that diamond. Would you not seek it out with all your heart in your home? Would you not seek diligently to find that diamond until you found it? This woman lost one, one of her coins. She didn't respond as if, oh, it's no big deal, I got nine more. Like this was a big deal to her. This meant something to her. The value of her so much so that, that Jesus says that she lit a lamp 
i.e., it's dark out, but she, she's going to find this thing. She's not sleeping until she finds this thing. It is a diligent seeking, and then she lights the lamp, and she's sweeping the house. Like, she's going to turn over every single thing in that house until she finds this coin, and she seeks diligently for that coin. Guys, do you see a formula there? Do you see a formula there for your wife? Just hide her, hide her ring, and your house will be cleaner. That's what Jesus is teaching here. No, I'm just kidding. Here's the thing. Jesus is saying that this woman would, would go at great lengths to find that thing which she found value in, that she had, had placed great value in. And when she found it, would she not call everyone she knew and say, hey, rejoice with me. The coin that I lost, I've now found. Will you rejoice with me? Rejoice with me. And then he gets to the principle here in verse 10. Once again, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, there is joy. God rejoices over one sinner who repents. He's absolutely thrilled when a sinner repents. I can only imagine the celebration that, that takes place in heaven when that happens. I mean, we're created in God's image. Look at the celebration that happens when a piece of pigskin goes over the end zone. People erupt in ridiculous praise. Uncontrollable celebration. Yes! Woo! My team, and yet, do you not think that that is happening in heaven? I promise you, and if I blew your eardrums out, I'm sorry, but the illustration is made clear. All of heaven rejoices when one sinner comes to repentance. Heaven goes nuts over this. The parable here is about a woman who searches for a lost coin. Who do you suppose the woman represents? Good old Charlie Spurgeon came up with something that I would have never seen in this. He said that the, the woman represents the Holy Spirit who is reaching the lost through the bride of Christ, which is the church. The church is oftentimes referred to as a woman in the Bible. And how does God reach the lost through the Holy Spirit in this day and age? He does draw them, but oftentimes it's through His church in this day and age that He would reach the lost. No one can come to the Father unless they're drawn. Who draws them? It's the Holy Spirit. Listen, He draws them through three things. In John 16, 8, you can look it up later. Conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is what He has come and He has drawn. And He has he he placed that upon the world and He is drawing them to a Savior. And oftentimes the Holy Spirit would use the bride of Christ, the church, to do this. There is an incredible illustration in this of how God would use the bride and how we are to do this. Not in a formula, but, but check this out. How did she respond to the lost coin? The first thing she did was what? She lit a lamp. We're to light the lamp. We're to bring the light of God's word into the conversation. As the church that we would bring the light 
God's word which would illuminate the path of darkness, which would illuminate the sin of a person, which would help them to see that they need Jesus. We would light a lamp of God's word and illuminate the darkness. Secondly, that we would sweep the house. Listen, the church needs to be clean. The church needs to be living in such a way that we are clean. Now, that's in repentance, yes. But that's also in just obedience to the Lord and His Word, that we would live in such a way that people would see our lives and see something different about us, that we would isolate ourselves in such a way that we are not taking part in things that are, that are offensive to our Lord. We'd be careful about the way we live before man. God's house should be clean. I'm not just talking physically, spiritually. Keep a clean house. Thirdly, we are to diligently seek the lost. Well, I'm not really the evangelistic type, right? Wrong. You are the evangelistic type because God, God brought you into his evangelistic army. You might not have the gift of evangelism in terms of standing up before people and you know, it'd be super easy for you to do because God's gifting you with that. But we're all called to make disciples. Make no mistake about it, Matthew 28, 19. That we would all go into the world and make disciples. That we would teach them about Jesus. We all have that call of evangelism. That we would be seeking diligently the lost. Let me ask you, are you seeking diligently the lost today? Or are you too preoccupied with the other nine coins that God's given you? To worry about the lost one. Listen, you are his representation today. The Holy Spirit will do it without you. He will draw people to himself regardless. But he wants to use you. He's, he's, he's gifted you and he's placed you in the right place to use you. Don't flake out on him. Engage. Diligently seek the lost. So we have Jesus seeking the lost as a shepherd. We have the Holy Spirit seeking the lost through the church. Remember God's heart for the lost? Now we come to the, the third parable here where we see a loving father seeking the lost. Look what we at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had and took a, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants are more than, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. What Jesus was describing here in this parable, a son asking 
for in his inheritance prior to his father's death wasn't common in this day, but it wasn't unheard of. It had happened. They had entitlement issues back then, too. Nothing is new under the sun. The father didn't have to give the inheritance, but in this case, he gave his son his portion, and his son took the money, and he spent it recklessly. In every single type of pleasure that you could experience in earth, he spent his money on. He went to Sin City, and he did what the world would say is living it up. Man, he was just reckless with his money. He was just throwing his money left and right. He, he was surrounded by people, no doubt. Oh, look at this high roller. Whoa, this guy's buying drinks for everybody in the bar. Look at him. Surrounded with all these ladies. This guy is, this guy is a pimp, man. Look at this guy. He's got everything. And yet, the one thing he didn't have was an unlimited supply of resources. His resources eventually ran out. And notice, about that time, and I don't want you to miss this, not as a result of his reckless living, but there was a famine that came in the land. He had not been diligent with what he had been given. A famine came in the land, and everybody was hurting, not just him. He hires himself out to some dude. It says that he became in want. Like he didn't even have, he didn't have a place to stay. He didn't have food to eat. So he hires himself out to this man. And he's looking at the pig slop saying, man, I'd like to fill my stomach with this. Because I'm so hungry. And what I want you to understand is that in that moment, he was surrounded by no one. Where were all his friends that he had been recklessly living with? Where are all those that he had, he had bought drinks for during, the, during that time? Where are those, all those that he had been just living it up with? Where were they? He was by himself. He was by himself, and he became a pig farmer, a Jewish man, a pig farmer. Like you could hear the gasp for air as Jesus said that. Oh, he's unclean. To be with swine, that's unclean. What is he doing? Could he have not done something else? Jesus is painting the picture of the most unclean Jewish person that you could get. He would have been shunned by the society for doing this to his father. Remember, in a society that was based on, you know, shame and fame, he would have been shunned by every one of those people. Because he became the most despicable man around. But I want you to understand that when you're down and out, the world will turn its back on you. This dude felt the harsh reality of the world. That only, that you're only its friend when you have something to give, but when you're in need, you're no longer needed. Jesus said no one gave him anything. This was the sad state, folks, but check this out. It's often, and I know this is true in my life, it's often in the tragic moments of our lives that we gain true perspective and insight. Is that true for you? 
It's often in those most tragic times when the darkest places in my life where I'm isolated, I'm all by myself, where all of a sudden I have an epiphany. Well, the Lord speaks so clearly to me that I can't miss it. It says that he came to himself. Literally, he remembered who he once was. Like he must have gone temporarily insane to ask his father for his inheritance and then to take it and squander it. And what I love about this is that when he realized his heir, when he did come to himself, that he didn't let pride get in the way. That he didn't, pride didn't stop him from saying, okay, well, you made your bed, you're going to lay in it now. So, you know, I'm going to figure out a way to get out of this. I'm going to do this on my own. No, no. He came to himself literally to the point where he recognized that there was nothing that he could do in this situation. He remembered the testimony of his father. He remembered who he once was. He remembered that he has a father that is gracious and kind and who took good care of his hired hands and whom was a forgiving man. So he thought to himself, perhaps I'll go and serve my father. Perhaps I'll go to him being compelled by his character and I'll ask him for forgiveness. I'm turning away from the world. I'm turning my heart back to the father. And so he left the pig pen and he came, listen, not in a spirit of entitlement, but he came in a spirit of humility and repentance. Father, forgive me. Like as he's coming on that road to come to his father's house, he's memorizing the, the, what he's going to say to his dad. Father, will you forgive me? I'm so broken. I can't believe that I did that. Will you forgive me for what I've done? I've sinned before heaven and before you. Will you forgive me? Seeking forgiveness. All humility is coming. And look what happens, verse 20b there. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let's, let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. This is the greatest picture of all times, folks. The moment when we see God the Father running to a lost sinner. It was while his son was still a long way off that the father saw him and felt compassion. Listen, there wasn't a day that didn't go by. From the moment his son departed and he went off to that far country that the father wasn't looking to the horizon for the silhouette of his son, longing and seeking for him to come. But the father understood that the son would have to experience the harshness of the world, that he would have to experience the deep, dark place of sin in his life before he could really come back truly, full-heartedly and commit himself to him. And so the father, restraining himself, looks to the horizon every day, longing to see his son coming. And it just so happens on this day that he sees a long distance off 
his son coming. And the response of the father is unbelievable. He stops whatever he is doing. It is indignant for a man of this guy's age to run at all. And this father says, I don't care about culture. I don't care about what people think. And he runs with everything he has, tears streaming from his eyes, to the son that he is longing to, to bring back into his fold. He loves this son so much. He's laughing and crying. He's embracing and kissing. He is, he is all over this boy. I can't believe you're back. I cannot believe that you made it back. I've been praying for you every day. been longing for you. And here you are. In just about that moment, the son, sheepish, no doubt, crackling in his voice, tears streaming down his eyes, looks up to his father and locks eyes with his father, and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Will you welcome me back in? I'm so sorry. I've turned away from that, though. And I'm coming wholeheartedly, and I'm not expecting anything from you. Just expecting a little bit of mercy and grace that you would allow me to just be a servant in your house. This isn't the, fa the, the father's response in this moment is not, yeah, you really blew it, son. You really did it. And you know, I don't know if I can go through this again. So you got one more chance. Is that how he responded? No, look how he responded. In the moment, he saw true repentance. The father brings the robe of righteousness and he says, you know what? This son had nothing to bring here. He had nothing to bring but his words and his heart. And he, the father seeing that gave him everything in that moment. He gave them the robe. He put it on the robe. He honored him. He put a ring on his finger. He put shoes on his feet. And he said, let's, let's slay the fatted calf because my son who was lost has now been found. This is a father who is celebrating the loss of a son, but never forgot him. Never forgot him. Who was always thinking about him, longing for him, but would not step over the line of forcing him to come back. That is God. That is the Father right now in this very moment as He sits in heaven, He looks down upon this earth, and He has done everything that He can do to draw men to Himself. He provided the Lamb of God. He has slain His Son, bled for you and died, and rose again from the dead. That's how much He loves you. This is God's heart and response to a willful, disobedient son who would return to him with a heart of repentance. He would rejoice and celebrate. I can imagine at this point, as Jesus looks around in the crowd, that there's not a dry eye in that crowd, except for those Pharisees and scribes. Indignant still by the fact that Jesus is in the presence of sinners. So perhaps that's when he carries on with this parable in verse 25 where he says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother 
has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received and him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young uh, goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Boo-hoo. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus is saying in this parable to these religious leaders, you're like the older brother in this parable. You stand tall in your self-righteousness and look down upon traitors and sinners who are trying to find their way to God. You reject rather than rejoice. How in the world does a person's heart get so hardened that they can get angry that the forgiveness of God is available to people who are distant from Him? How is it that someone's heart could get so hard that they would despise that rather than rejoice over it? Can I tell you how? It's when you forget who you once were. It's when you forget what Jesus has done for you. Paul said it, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He talks about the pe- that which you once were. Don't you forget who you once were. As you look into the world and you see sinners sinning, sinners sin. As you watch them do that, don't you despise them. Of course, we're not celebrating with them in their sin. But listen, understand their blindness. Understand where they were because you once were there. I once was there. May it break your heart to see somebody that is so blinded by their own darkness that they wouldn't come to Christ. They wouldn't extend, they wouldn't grab hold of the arm that is extended to them. God's arm is not too short that it can't save, but understand you have to reach up to it. Doesn't matter how deep you are, no matter how in dark place you might be, as soon as you begin to reach for it, his hand will be there. He wants to save people. He loves lost people. But these Pharisees and scribes have lost the entire meaning of who God is. He is love. He is not self-righteous. He is righteous. But he doesn't look down upon those who are not. Chapter 18. He loves you. He loves lost people. He wants to work in their life, and He has sent you into the world. So don't become hardened by sinners in the world. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't stop loving people right where they are, and as God draws them into your presence, don't you stop ministering to them. Don't try and keep an arm's length distance. He sent you to where you are. You've been placed in that that place where you are where there might be darkness surrounding you and you're supposed to be the light, so be the light. Don't become darkness with them. 
what was happening with these scribes and Pharisees as they were becoming darker as darkness surrounded them. And yet they thought they were being the light. Listen, be compassionate towards the lost Christian. That's the heart of God. You want to be more like Jesus? Love the lost like Jesus loved the lost. Minister to them. Listen, don't become like a Pharisee or a scribe, hard-hearted towards people like that. And listen, don't fake it either. Oh, we're so glad you're back, but I can't wait to see if it's real. Right? The cynical Christian that watches sinners come in and, well, we'll see if it's real. That's not our job. Our job is to love people as they come in and just push them to Jesus. It's not our job to figure out if they're saved or they're not saved. Our job is just to keep pushing them to Jesus, to lead them to the throne of grace, to the foot of the cross, and allow God himself to do the work that only he can do in their life. Have compassion and love for the lost. That's what Jesus is teaching here. He's saying, hey, sinner, I love you. And if you'll draw near to me sincerely, with a repentant heart, I will rejoice over you. He's saying, Christian, if you're in sin and there's sin in your life and and you're not dealing with it, that you come in the heart of repentance and I will too rejoice over you. It's not just the lost that God rejoices over. He rejoices over repentance. Repentance, when we recognize our vileness before him and we turn away from it, turn to him, all heaven rejoices. Yes, when a sinner comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also when his church is trying to sweep their house and be clean. He rejoices. He would say, guard your heart against that pharisaical um, spirit that would look down on the lost. This is God's words himself as it relates to the lost. Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Like God's not up in heaven saying, yeah, I get to punish another one. He finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. To turn back. This is repentance. To turn back. To turn back from your evil ways. And, why, and for why will you die, O house of Israel? God delights in not eternally punishing those who have, lost, who have rejected Christ, but he desires that those who are destined for hell would turn from their wickedness and come to Christ through repentance, to turn away from their sin and to turn to God. It's a decision, and God rejoices over it when you and I make that decision. He's done it all, and he's simply waiting for you to respond. So respond this morning. You know where you are with him. You know where you sit. You know whether you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. You know whether you're faking it or you're not faking it. You know whether you're being real and honest with him or not being real and honest with him. You know if you're putting your best foot forward and you're serving him with everything you have. You know where you sit with him today. The Holy Spirit is distinctly speaking to every person in this room today and he's saying, you know. You know where you are. You know if you're looking down on people. You know if you have a hard heart towards sinners. You know, it, you know that you might think you're of yourself a little more highly than you ought. You know where you are. So he is saying, respond to me this morning. He's saying to you, as we remember what Jesus has done for us, and the worship team is coming up, and we're going to distribute the 
the elements, and we're going to remember what Jesus has done for us. But Jesus is just saying, be real with me this morning. I've been real with you. There's not a single thing I can't forgive. There's not a single thing I won't forgive, but you have to come turning away from whatever that might be and turn to me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for, Lord, giving us such an incredible picture of, of God's heart for the lost. May this be our heart, Lord. May we be so passionate about lost people. May we be so passionate about those who have a special place in your heart that we would pursue and seek and that we would find and we would rejoice, Lord. Help us, Lord, not to allow our heart to become hardened and Lord, if we're here this morning and our heart is hardened, maybe from the sin in our own life, the wickedness that we see all over the place in our world, whatever it might be, would you peel away that hardness right now? Would you soften my heart, God? Would you help me to see people the way that you see them? I want to be like Jesus, Lord. If there's anyone here this morning that is not in right relationship with you, who's never made a profession of faith to you or maybe has and realizes that it wasn't, that they didn't come in true repentance, that they would fall on their face before you this morning, Lord. That they would just simply say, Father, I'm a sinner. I recognize that this morning. And I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm this, the son in that story and I'm saying, Lord, forgive me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and that he rose again from the dead. For me, I'm turning away from my life and I'm turning to you. Make me clean and help me to stay clean, Lord. Father, for any brother and sister that has been away from you, has been distant from you, that you just draw them to yourself and help them return to you again in a spirit of repentance. And so as we continue to uh, remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross this morning, Lord, may we all just take count of our own hearts this morning and may we come and partake of these elements lord with pure hearts we pray in jesus name amen thanks for listening you can hear more of pastor tim's studies through the word of god on our website www.calvaryofcolumbia.org thanks again for listening and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study god's word